Welcome to The Writing Life, the podcast for anyone who writes. I'm James Gill. And I'm Steph McKenna. From the National Centre for Writing here at Dragon Hall in Norwich. So this episode is a Writing Life special, featuring an hour of new writing read by the writers on this year's National Centre for Writing Escalator Talent Development Programme, recorded earlier this year at their showcase event at Dragon Hall. Escalator is our talent development programme, and each year we look for ambitious, challenging, unconventional and affecting new voices in fiction writing from the east of England. The region is made up of a diverse society of people, and supporting writers who are underrepresented on UK bookshelves has become a core objective of that project. So this programme has been running since 2004. It's one of National Centre for Writing's longest running programmes and it includes eight months of mentoring, training, guidance and networking for participants. To date we've supported more than 130 writers, many of whom have gone on to sign with agents, publish and win awards and critical recognition for their novels and short stories. We had a fantastic group of writers in 2022 and we hosted them here for the annual Escalator Showcase event where they all read from their work and so what you're about to hear is the audio from that event. Unfortunately, years of austerity and funding cuts have made funding through traditional means increasingly difficult. So this year we're asking for your help to ensure that we're able to continue providing essential support to writers through the Escalator programme. You can help today by donating or by buying one of our limited edition screen prints from the NCW website. Without this funding, writers like those you're about to hear may never have their voices heard. Their work's never coming to fruition or reaching UK bookshelves. So, if you want to find out more about Escalator, head to the website. If you want to buy a print or donate, head to the website. And now, without further delay, we bring you the 2022 Escalator Showcase, starting with Adam Leader reading from his novel, Funk. Hi, everyone. Good evening. So I'm going to be reading today from my novel, Funk, um, which is a crime noir novel about loyalty, betrayal and revenge set in a struggling seaside town. Chapter one, a stranger in his hometown. The sentence curved down at the end of the single line, the letters a bastard mix of upper and lower case. The postcard itself was unsigned, the deck chairs on the front at odds with the grim communique. Somebody shot Bramwell Crane. I travelled thousands of miles to reach the last place I wanted to be. Home. Show me a man with secrets and I'll show you one with debts. The card had arrived in Colombia via the ship's mailbag. Since then, I'd hopped four freighters, knowing my destination, unable to admit it. Lima, Rotterdam, La Havre, Felixstowe my duty to Bramwell growing inside me with each setting sun. Our ship approached harbour. Cameras on the shoreline searched for migrants in rubber boats. The captain stood beside me on the bridge, watching the pilot as you might a toddler with a Ming vase. This not somebody else's problem, he said, his voice high-pitched and scouse like air escaping from a balloon. Maybe, I said. You'll be doing it anyway? I shrugged. I didn't know the captain's name, didn't need to. Everybody just called him Captain, as though he'd sprung from the womb with the hat on. He pulled a photograph of two young children from a tattered wallet, third pocket, behind a fixture list and a phone card. Got anyone at home? Loaded question. I shook my head. We stood in silence as the boat cut along the beach towards the blue cranes, the coastline a tapestry of a past I'd rather forget. 
I remembered Calhoun's words like they were yesterday. I wish you'd never told us. Little wonder I rarely came back. Guess I wasn't the high school reunion type. The captain nodded to the document case in my hand. That's your file? Huh? Your file? About your friend? It wasn't much to go on. Just press clippings about the police investigation into Bramwell's murder. A macabre scrapbook of, a scrapbook of the bare facts. Single shot to the head. Victim in his 80s. No suspects. The case had made local news, not national. I thought about the captain's photo again. Nobody at home. Nobody to kick up a stink. Bramwell had protected me when I needed it most. Now he was gone. It was mid-morning. Summer was starting and the beach was filling with pale skin despite the wind. The captain eyed my needle scars and cheap port tattoos. Sideways glance. Furtive. He raised his hand to criticise the pilot, then decided it wasn't worth the trouble. We stood and watched the sea. The boys say you worked for the bosses? Worked, I thought. I kept my gaze on the shoreline and hoped he'd leave me be. It's nothing, just finding people, finding things. Don't sound like nothing. I'd worked 30 years for the Finisterre Shipping Company, graduating from stowaway to in-house fixer. The company became family to a boy who'd fled his own. I called it the school of hard knots. Nobody ever laughed. For the last 10 years, I'd worked under the wing of a Frenchman named Lafarge, going solo when he'd retired. The freighters kept us busy, a law unto themselves and a recipe for trouble. Take one crew of misfits, pack in a tinderbox with a liberal dash of moonshine, ferment under a Pacific sun, set the timer for six months and stand back. I turned to the captain. Like I said, it's nothing. Lafarge had a saying, the fourth of his Ten Commandments, loose lips literally sink ships. I pictured him, a gorwaz hanging from his mouth, a Hawaiian shirt loose on his diminutive frame. The captain was fighting a losing battle with his trousers, hitching them up by the belt loops before his gut expanded again, pushing the waistband back to its default position. Word is you're on the outs, he said. I stared straight ahead. That's so. The boys say you're on the sick. Heard you went. He clicked his fingers, trying to conjure the word. Postal, I said. Aye, that's it, postal. Seemed word travelled fast. I pushed off the guardrail and walked away, then looked over my shoulder and lied through my teeth. The boys shouldn't believe everything they hear. I hung back as the crew lowered the gangway, casing the faces of the stevedores, laired in the pit of my stomach. Eventually I crossed over, last man off, watching the brown swell below me as the turns flew east and the herring gulls followed in their wake. The July sun had burned through the sea mist and the early beachgoers were turning pink on the pebbles fronting the harbour side. I took a deep breath and stepped ashore, a stranger in my hometown, free with a history, just the cash in my pocket, the clothes on my back and life's essentials in my duffel. Thank you ever so much. It's my great pleasure to introduce our next reader, uh, Carrie Patton. Uh, Carrie writes short stories, poetry, and radio plays. Uh, her writing practice is informed by undergraduate and postgraduate study with the Open University. 
she also draws influence from previous study at Norwich University of the Arts, reflected in the way she creates story worlds. Um, she was the commissioned writer for both uh, the British Art Show 8 and the exhibition Mind Language Matter, curated by J.M.C. Anderson. Uh, she was also listed with honours for the Cinnamon Literature Award, and Cress was published in the Lighthouse Literary Journal Number no. 7. Um, her poetry has featured in Ink, Sweat and, Te and Sweat and Tears. As a writer in residence for A Room of One's Own, she adapted a series of her own short stories into a radio script. Please welcome Carrie to the stage. Thank you, Adam. Hello, I'm Carrie Patton. I'd like to extend warm thanks to all the team at the Writers' Centre, my Escalator mentees, and most especially to my marvellous mentor, Megan Bradbury. I'm going to read the beginning of one of the short stories from my collection, Semaphore, which encapsulates many of the collection's recurring themes. Pip is a coming-of-age story. I am collapsible. Oh, I'm tiny. Just look at me, tiny. I'm the size of matchsticks, even smaller, I suppose. I am paper and wood, cloth and glue, the finest thread tied in knots. You use a magnifying glass which bows the shape of me, the shape of you, as I watch your wonderful eye watching me. You build me in layers from the wreckage of older ships, rescued from the ocean floor of your study, from the flotsam you find in dust at your desk, or jetsam which gathers in the loops of, gathers in the swells of the loop par rug. Hour after hour of half-light evenings, you sit under the hot angle poise, slide through the bottleneck, me positioned, you pull the strings till I unfurl my rigging. Look, just look, Papa. I have wind in my sails. I'm luffing. You can see it. Luffing, so I must have. This bottle has all the air I need. Stop it. I think it has all the world I need. Now you think I'm ready. You set me adrift like a swallow float. And I follow. It arrives in the summer. The upturned belly pepper. For all the world, it's the humpback of a whale, bruised and barnacled. This boat, a mirror, look at it. The varnish cracked and peeling, we sand to blonde virgin wood. We remove old layers. You want to take it back to the beginning, Papa. You think you are Noah, but you can't save us all with this ark. You can't save me from this flood. Me and you, we sand by hand. We sand till the wood becomes smooth and my skin becomes flaked and tingling to the touch. But these hands do feel slow, Papa, ever so. Can't we use something quicker? Because Noah, even Noah, would have used power tools to make fast work of the ark if he could have. What? No. Where's the fire? We have time, don't we? Time all the time in the world. You're so impatient. Listen, if things are worth doing, they're worth doing well. It's about craft. It's, pro it's about process. It's dexterity, precision, repetition, tradition. 
and you need to feel the materials you use to understand them. You build vessels with your hands, Papa, piece by piece. You are the master crafter. You're the captain. I'll follow. It's the best way to learn. I watch and copy. Your beard is full of sawdust. Sawdust sticks to the sweat on your forearms. They are strong arms. I have older brothers, but none of them help. They skulk in the shadows behind the four walls, hiding from sultry heat. They while away summer, keep strange hours, take up large parts of this house with horizontal limbs spread. Under your bearded breath you mutter, slack Alice, work shy, idle uni boys. And I am a girl, what do you make of this papa? It is me and you and a vat of yacht varnish which oozes like maple syrup. I load my brush like papa and watch the thunderflies in this July heat stick to the boat's curves as they drown like the citizens of cities in the spew of molten mountains. You've read books, Papa. You've read everything you need to know, everything you could get your hands on, and you know so much about it. Part-time sailor, teach yourself to sail, get real, get gone, Moby Dick, sail on a budget, Gulliver's Travels, Treasure Island, modern sea gypsy. Swallows and Amazons build a mirror from scratch. I cycle to fetch them, heavy in my bike basket, wobbling with the weight of them along newly laid roads. You've studied them all, cover to cover, piles and piles of books on interlibrary loan, with pictures of pirates and frigates and windswept women showing bronze shoulders to the prow of yachts looking out into the sunset, pipe on your lip in the lamplight. You grew your beard and shaved it, grew it and shaved it in the time it took to learn. Right now, it's a biblical length, all the colors of rusty iron anchors. Some days, Papa, I don't recognize you at all. Today, you're an old sea dog, an armchair sailor, slippered index shoes, making notes in the mar margin. When the dew next morning forms drops on the hull's hard surface, we practice with rigging. And Papa, we practice and practice. We tie rope, Flemish, we knot, we clove hitch, bowline, eye slice, soft shackle, carrot bend till my palms are raw. Look, Papa, look at these palms. We spend all daylight hours folding and unfurling this dinghy like the ship I am in a bottle. You throw me a line and I catch it. You shout aft and stern, port and starboard. I scamper to all parts of the vessel following your commands. I am first mate, shipmate, titty boy Roger. By dusk, I am Susan, whilst the she of her stands on the parched lawn of our front garden, fully rigged. I can see the puncture of tiny holes from her polymer stitching as we stand and look at the sunset in her tangerine sails. But Papa, look around you. There's not a drop of water for miles and miles. I have the pleasure of introducing our next writer, Bang Wang, 
has published nine books in China and France, and a film script, The Dream Cages, won the award for the best feature drama at the NYIFF in 2011, New York. Her works have been published in Guggenheim Museum, Words Without Borders, and HK Literature, among others. Her non-fiction collection, The Texture of Hard Times, an observational memoir of life in the UK, was published by Dandu in two, uh, 2022 and has been shortlisted for the Chinese Youth Writer Award 2019 and selected for the 10 best non-fiction of 2018 in China by the Harvest Literary Magazine. A Little Death is her first novel in English. Thank you. I'm going to read an excerpt from A Little Death, the first novel I have written in English. It's about a Chinese feminist who was persecuted by her society, is now fighting her footing in England. Can you see the flea market down the hill? Miss Cassandra asked, excited. Whenever she's excited, her cheeks turn rose pink, like a young lady in a pantomime. Yeah. I know and race to catch up with her. There are so many things listed in Miss Cassandra's Matsy and awaiting me to explore. Fleet markets, charity shops, and jumbo sales are at the top of it. Not because I have all the time in the world, simply because I too, like Miss Cassandra, just don't have the money to grace in shopping malls. The market spreads before me like a sea of pirate goods glistening under the pale and scentless daylight. The wind mixed with perfumes and something else, the smell of moldy leather, of old brass fire guards, of dusty furniture and dry flowers, all blowing from the endless open air stores. The air is filled with human voices, loud and full of life and enthusiasm, dismembering the air around my ears. In my hometown, we had a place like this one too. The locals call it Ghost Market. As the name suggests, it can only be opened before dawn. My mother and I used to get up around 3 a.m. in the morning, trotting three or four miles to do our weekly shopping there. Everything had to be sold in a suspicious faint light and bargain in slurp whispers. Staff range from ice and vegetables to some, sorry, staff range from rice and vegetables to smuggled second-hand shoes and woolly jumpers, or pretty much everything. Some items gathered from a landfill full of imported waste on the shore and still smell of waste. But we sudden care at all, not did the vendors. Most vendors couldn't afford rent in the new built shopping centre or anywhere else in the city anyway. Some had their old stores cleaned by the, by the police after the government launched a campaign on building a tidy and beautiful city and therefore had to risk a heavy fine, so had to make quick sales before daylight arrived. My mother managed to save a lot of money for my school fees and most of all for my brother's future wedding thanks to the ghost market. Now here I am. It's not hard to get one's footing in something that one is already so familiar with. I start looking around like a frog in an old pond. 
There are men wearing dresses over their trousers to gain attention for their stools. Wigs and high heels hanging on racks, sexy night dresses piling up on baskets. You have no idea what people show out these days. Half-used face powders, nail polishes and lipsticks, as new sunglasses and gorgeous sleepers, all pre-loved. Some even big brands in splendid condition. Evidently, you can buy pretty much everything in here, from head to toe, and transform yourself from a Cinderella into a Duchess for less than a tenner, or in this icy cold gloominess. A chubby girl with a dimple on her face approaches me with a funky plastic handbag. How about this, sweetheart? It got you written all of it. The girl says, to you, because I lie yeah, just too quick. No, definitely not this one. Miss Cassandra quickly jars me away. You need some posh stuff, love. You know what I mean. Something posh to go with a nice decent dress for your date. Miss Cassandra underlies the words posh through her bold, great Yamas accent. I nod posh, though I have heard it before. Somehow it appears to be yet another alien word to me. How on earth would I figure out what's posh and what isn't? This is the trickiest bit in English. You know exactly what it means, but you just can't define it. What do you say, Miss Cassandra asked? Nothing, I didn't say anything. Suddenly, I lost interest in buying anything here. My tongue steps back before to pre-language, and I close my mouth. After a swallow dick, Miss Cassandra can find anything posh enough for me, but does select three pairs of half-meal trainers for herself. I really needed them, she smiles. I understand. I nod again. Working as a cleaner for three places, Miss Cassandra hardly gets the chance to sit. She stands roughly 11 hours a day, including two hours, commuting back and forth on trains or buses. Her spine doesn't look too bad for her age, but it will bend sooner or later. In a charity shop near Deptford Bridge, Miss Cassandra has finally found a nice decent dress for me. I tried it on. It looks ridiculous, but I don't want to disappoint her, so I take out a fiver from my purse and pay for it. Not bad, yeah, you'll be expecting to pay at least 60 quid for something like that, Miss Cassandra claims. It's from Massey's Spencer. Apparently, it looks really posh. It's a light grey nightdress, very symmetrical. The lower part of the dress, stiff with silver sequins, supposed to look like a mermaid, but somehow it looks more like a cheese grater when it flashes. Thank you. The next speaker is Ben Carwright, and here's a short introduction about him. For Ben Carwright, writing is about investigating what makes people tick, 
a love for story was given to him by an aunt who recounted the lives of his ancestors across the sea. A childhood spent in a house affected by illness made him interest in the way illness is like an earthquake with aftershock ripping out through different relationships. His life journey has allowed him to experience many things, including being a bicycle courier, an archaeologist on top of coastal stock in Orkney, and a museum curator running projects in India. He recently completed the Faber writing a novel course. Hi, thanks, Bang. I'm Ben. I'm going to be reading from the Lovey Dovey Danger Manual, a book about overcoming misbelief. It's the story of Harry Cosgrove, a lonely London solicitor who tries to rewrite a self-help manual to prove feelings are dangerous when the artist who had an affair with his mum returns after 24 years abroad. This scene is from the start of the book. Harry's just home from work, had dinner, when the door buzzer goes. Two short bursts on the buzzer. Whoever it was had changed their technique. Before I opened the door, I remembered to check the peephole. An elderly man in a felt hat with a wide brim. The hat seemed a bit extravagant, so that ruled out the council and his coat was too smart for him to be an ex-prisoner selling cleaning sponges. I wondered if it was some kind of street collection for charity. He had a piece of paper in his hand. It was probably a flyer telling me to sponsor his daughter doing hopscotch for the orphans in Kathmandu. When I opened the door, he smiled at me, waiting for me to speak, which seemed the wrong order of things. Yes? I kept my hand on the door in case I needed to slam it shut. I made sure to position my legs carefully to one side. I didn't want to rip my suit trousers. It's me. The brim of the felt hat cast a shadow over his eyes. He was wearing little round spectacles and had a wispy beard that was kept the same width of his bushy moustache like a horse stirrup. I studied his neck and saw his shirt collar was faded and worn. There was a faint smell of lavender about him. Spare any arms, sir? He scooped the hat off his head and held it out to me like a bowl. He grinned, like I was the sort of person he used to joke with in the past. Forgive me, I couldn't remember the trains. He was probably a friend of the previous owners and assumed I was one of their grown-up children. The wife was an interior designer. Who else would paint a hallway that colour blue? She must have had a lot of arty friends, I thought. The sort so muddled up with ideas of beauty and perspective that taking trains was a challenge. I'm afraid the Barwick Joneses have moved. I can give you their address. I tried to study my visitor's hands. Was that paint at the edge of his nails? He looked confused. No, Harry boy. Don't you recognize me? I suppose I've aged. He smiled and scratched his beard with his mouth open. There was a gold ring on his little finger, 
the sort with a flat surface for a carved design. Then something did come to me. My skin turned cold as if it started raining again. I knew what was carved on that ring. It was the long man of Wilmington, that ancient figure cut into the chalk of a Sussex hill not far from where my mum lived. She had given him the ring. It's me, Tim. He reached forwards as if I might want to hug him. I grimaced and held on to the door. I decided to concentrate on the details. I knew that ring's lopsided weight. I had tried it on as a boy. He let me. The gold man slipping around my skinny fingers. There was an inscription inside the band. What was it? Something cryptic. Belonging is a wonderful thing. Aren't you going to invite me in? If I'd known you were coming, I wouldn't have opened the door. He just smiled and isn't it wonderful to be alive smiled and said, that is the power of surprises. At that time, I was suspicious of surprises. If I could get through a day with everything going exactly as I imagined it, I would collapse into bed with a deep sense of relief. Why are you here? I finished the painting, Harry boy. What a stupid thing for him to tell me. He was a painter. He probably finished a painting every week, every day for all I knew. It's taken 24 years. Clara Covgrove and her children. He started coughing, bending over and putting his hands on his thighs. Even in that coat, I could see his shoulders heave. I remembered to only breathe through my nose. I could have said something rude, but I didn't. I remained in control. It came back to me, the memory of having to stand still for hours in the beach spinney as he sketched with charcoal, then painted on the outlines and started layering on the colour. All this being forced to smile for hours reminds me of my wedding photographs, my mum had said. I couldn't remember what Tim said to that. I was sure he wouldn't want to think of her being happy on her wedding day. How my cheeks hurt, my mum added. Perhaps you weren't used to smiling, Tim asked as he dipped his brush in the paint. Timothy, don't be naughty. Naughtiness is underrated. Isn't that so, Harry boy? He winked at me. Stop. Mind over matter. I was determined these thoughts had to stop. Why have you come here? I thought you might want to see it. I want you to be at the opening of my exhibition. It's my first in 12 years. But you can't just show up here. You're not part of my life. Harry boy, we used to spend so much time together. I want to go back to that. I miss you. You cannot just turn back the clock. Didn't he remember? Didn't he know the accident was all his fault? I had to control myself. I refused to get angry. Anger was a weakness. Feelings were dangerous. The door slammed with a satisfying thud. I fastened the security bolt, which took two attempts because my hands were shaking. I clicked the Yale lock to locked and leant against the wall for support. The letterbox opened. I understand. I understand, Harry boy. You must be full of so many emotions. 
It's important to let them out. That's what I've learned. I know this amazing woman in Laverno. It took me years before I went. I was in a dark place, Harry boy. I had to learn to let my emotions speak. I had to listen to them, to work with them. Go away. I'll see you at the opening then. Go. There was a scuffling noise and the piece of paper came through the letterbox. It wasn't a flyer for orphans in Kathmandu. It was an exhibition advert. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's a massive pleasure for me to introduce Joe. Joanna Miller has an MA in English Literature from Oxford University. After graduating, she worked as a teacher before establishing a poetry gift business. One of her poems was filmed by the BBC and in 2015, she won the Poetry Prize run by Bloomsbury Publishing. During lockdown, Joanna completed Faber Academy's Write Your Novel course. Please bring the house down for Joe. Thank you, Ben. I'm Joanna, and I'm reading an extract from my novel, The Bee Orchids, which tells the story of four friends at Oxford University in 1920, the groundbreaking year that women were first admitted as students. Many of the characters in the, novels have in the novel have secrets, and this passage hints at revelations to come about quiet student Marianne Gray. The college cat needs a place to birth her kittens. The last litter, found blind and stumbling in the gardener's shed, were drowned by the porter. At the direction of the principal, he carried them, roiling in a coal sack, down to the river at the university parks and threw them into the weedy depths. An old brick at the bottom did the trick. He watched a few bubbles rise feebly to the surface, tutted over the loss of a perfectly good sack and returned to college on his bicycle. The cat treads lightly around men now, but she has a job to do. To feed herself, she must hunt the mice and rats that frequent the college outbuildings and cellars. Occasionally, she will take care of the rodents in the residential houses down the street too. A few of the students are charmed by the way she scoots under their hems and rubs vibrating around their ankles. A common moggy with all the gloss of a black pink stole, she has taken to climbing the woody vines that skirt beneath Marianne's bedroom window and to meowing outside until granted access. She attempted it once with Dora, one floor below, but was given short shrift in the form of a glass of water. In Dora's opinion, there is only one way of entering a room, no matter how modern and free-thinking she likes to think she is. When the cat is bulging with young and gamely struggling to climb the vines, Marianne allows it to nest in the cupboard at the base of her sink. She donates an old towel and morsels of egg and rabbit from mealtimes. By skimping on the purchase of quality tea and borrowing darning wool, she is able to visit the butcher on North Parade Avenue and buy overpriced slices of liver and kidney. Good, she thinks, for their nutritional properties. It is worth it. The cat chews with yakety sounds and swallows the meat hungrily. A few nights later, it gives birth to six snub-nosed blobs with skin for eyes. 
Marianne rubs the sleek wet fur with the flannel and offers the kittens to their mother's teats. Two are dead, and she places their body in the grate wrapped in newspaper, not knowing what else to do with them. While she makes a pyre, tiny paws open and close on their mother's swollen belly as they gorge on her milk. Mimi and Dora are revolted by the feral nature of the litter. Vermin, Marianne, vermin! But Beatrice is fascinated by the instinctive drive of the animal to nurture her young, and that the young in turn expect it. She kneels in the doorway watching them feed, unfazed by the cat's suspicious glances. So Marianne entrusts Beatrice with the care of the litter when she is in Cullum at the weekend, and decides as soon as they are weaned, she will, somehow, take them back to the rectory. St Mary's needs a mouser, and her father's parishioners will find homes for the others. The kittens must stay with their mother for at least a month, so she asks Mimi to negotiate with Maud. Mimi has the most sway with the scout, being both a generous tipper and used to instructing servants. Maud is usually amenable, if it is not her day to scrub the stairs, and most likely Mimi will, will pay her to turn a blind eye, a debt which Marianne, on this occasion, is prepared to overlook. The first few weeks are hard work, but while the kittens remain in the box, it is manageable. Marianne cannot resist pressing them to her face and burying her nose and mouth into their soft, puny rib cages. Sometimes they doze in her arms, creating a dizzying warmth in her chest. However, within three weeks, the kittens, all black and white, become mobile and are swinging off the curtains like drunken acrobats. Marianne dreads finding them dead in the quad below, but the window must remain open. Although she has rolled back the threadbare rug, during the day they urinate and defecate, under and on the bed, she is running out of both time and newspaper. The following Monday, she returns from an afternoon, making notes on Cymbeline and the board, and opens the bedroom door warily, only to find it empty. She cannot work out if the cat has carried the kittens out of the window, or they have been taken. There is no sign in the quad, cellar, or outbuildings. Maud said she knows nothing about it and turns back to attacking the stairs, water slopping from the top of the pail as she plunges in the scrubbing brush. Marianne weeps angrily into her pillow, fine hair sticking to her lips and cheeks, but dare not raise a fuss. The next morning, she sees the mother cat in the garden, stalking a thrush. The cat is apparently unperturbed and refuses to come when she calls. In her pigeonhole, Marianne finds a letter from Miss Jourdain warning her that keeping animals in rooms is expressly forbidden and that she expects more of an exhibitioner. Marianne uses the letter to light her fire that evening and nurses her bitterness and resentment in the privacy of her set. At the end of six weeks, she leaves college for her fortnightly visit home. Miss Stroud chaperones her as usual, and after departing the crowded omnibus, they stand in glum silence watching the 2.15 to Abingdon crawl into the station. Gritty smoke billows. At the beckoning of the conductor's whistle, the doors clatter open, and there is chaos as descending passengers dive between the waiting ones on the platform. The hot hiss of the engine and the grind of conversation makes Marianne's head pound. A hand tugs on her sleeve, and she turns amongst the throng to see a familiar face hovering behind her. Before Marianne can speak, Maud pushes a picnic basket at her and beckons her closer. This is all I could manage, she says, and retreats into the crowd. Marianne nods, confused, but Maud is already stalking away. Come along, says Miss Stroud. I have other things to do today.
Safely in the third class, class carriage with the basket on her lap, Marianne watches the red brick station and canal shrink to a picture postcard. Opposite her sit a mother and son. The boy looks around five or six, still young enough to be excited by the train. He leans into his mother as she points out interesting sights through the window, whispering a commentary in his ear. Marianne holds the basket to her chest, feels a familiar quickening within. She opens the wicker lid an inch and puts her ear towards the hole. There is a mew as shrill and pure as birdsong. The boy spins round, his eyes questioning and wide. Together they watch as a paw reaches out and claws at the air. It's my pleasure to introduce Isabel Higgins to you. Isabel is a writer based in Cambridge, in the UK. Isabel is currently working on her PhD in sociology, exploring how intersectional inequalities differentially structure everyday lives. Isabel engages with similar themes in her creative writing. She is particularly interested in notions of space, place, and family. Isabel began writing creatively while traveling solo across North America in her late teens. She continued to write while working in the charity and campaign sector and throughout her academic studies, where she also pursued directing and writing for the stage. She is now working on her first novel. Unfortunately, Isabel cannot be here tonight in person, but she's going to join us by video. Thank you. Hi everyone, it's really nice to be with you all virtually. I'm sorry I couldn't be there this evening in person, um, but I'm really excited to read an extract from the novel I've been working on with the Escalator Programme. My name's Isabel Higgins and I'm a writer based in Cambridge. This extract is from a novel that follows the life of a young girl um, from her birth to when she's age 21 with one chapter for each year of her life. Um, as well as focusing on the main character, Mariana, the novel also closely follows the life of her mother, Elsie, and her grandmother. Um, her grandmother, who came to the UK from the Caribbean in the 50s as part of the Windrush migration movement, and her mother, who is the daughter of her grandmother. So we're looking at three generations of women throughout the novel, as well as a much wider cast of characters, mainly family and family friends. So at this point in the novel, Mariana's mother, Elsie, is trying to come to terms with the death, the sudden and unexpected death of her husband, Ed, and also trying to cope with various members of both her family and Ed's family who are trying to help her and Mariana, but in ways that often cause um, just as much pain or difficulty as they do help. The attack, or what Elsie thought of as an attack, came from all sides. She wished she could resist it but it was too well planned, too well executed, and its persistence was more than she could handle. First, it was her mother calling the phone, an old landline that sat on the kitchen table at 7 a.m., 7.05 a.m., 7.10 a.m., 7.15 a.m. every morning. If Elsie didn't answer, her neighbors would start banging on the wall. Pray with me, her mother would say when she picked up the phone. And if Elsie tried to say no, her mother's voice would get stronger and harder. And at that time in the morning, with sleep still in the corners of her eyes and gunk between her teeth, it was easier to obey. They do the Lord's Prayer and a few of the Psalms, Elsie repeating line by line after her mother, 
feeling like she was a small child again, feeling like it was Sunday. And then her mother would ask for Mariana, and after Mariana got off the phone, she'd solemnly fill two bowls with Weetabix and milk and place them very carefully at the tiny kitchen table before telling her mother very seriously that Grandma had told her that they must both eat breakfast. Both of us, Mummy, she'd say emphatically, and the worry in her eyes was too much for Elsie. And so she'd sit and eat, watching her daughter watching her, Mariana's little shoulders relaxing with every mouthful that Elsie took. Then it was Francis, asking casually in one of his calls if she remembered his friend Theo, the one who was trying to write instead of act. Theo wanted a country getaway to focus on his writing, Francis said, and would pay £300 to stay in Elsie's cottage for the Easter week. Elsie hesitated, but not for long. That would cover the car tax and the MOT. And then it was Andrew, insisting that Elsie and Mariana stay that whole week with them, that it would do no good to have Mariana around because the boys on the street outside were driving him and Lisa mad. And then it was Richard, calling from London, saying that he and Patience had heard from a friend of a friend that Theo was staying in their house. And why didn't they come down to London for the second week of Mariana's Easter holidays so that Theo could extend his stay? He was really terribly behind on his script and needed much more than a week, Richard said. And before Elsie could say no thank you, he said cheerio and told her to watch out for the post. And when it came, the very next day, there were two first-class return train tickets to London as well as tickets for a children's matinee. The show was Ballet Shoes, one of Ed's favourites. Elsie's eyes filled with tears and she wept for the rest of the morning. She was too tired, she thought, for any of this. When Francis called that afternoon, a cautious expectancy in his voice, she told him not to bother to feign surprise. The bitterness of her anger energised her and she marched up and down the kitchen, the phone held to her ear with her shoulder, her voice rising and rising, the neighbours beginning all over again to bang on the dividing wall. Fuck this, she screamed, slamming down the phone, pulling on her boots, leaving the house through the back door and scrambling over the garden wall down the hill into the valley. It was foggy again that year, those months. The ground squelched underfoot, sheep emerged suddenly from the cold wet air, and the earth was boggy and uneven. Elsie pulled herself through patches of grass and reeds and sharp stones, not trying to find or follow the footpath that wound down the hillside. At the very bottom of the valley, there was a small woodland. Pine trees, their scent strong in the damp air, rose from dark earth. There was little undergrowth, just a littering of pine needles and, in the centre of the woodland, a small stream, water pouring steadily over a limestone bed. Elsie sat on a tree stump by the water. There was no sound from the road above her, no farmers out on the land around her, and the sheep in the fields, often running and buying, seemed subdued by the heaviness of the sky. She thought about Ed, teaching Mariana to paddle here all those summers ago, Mariana's chubby legs and baby feet gripping onto the slippery stones, Elsie with her heart in her mouth watching them, and Ed with his hands under Mariana's armpits, laughing at his daughter's surprise, the way her mouth opened wide at the coldness of the water. Elsie sat for a while and the air was still. Thank you very much. I'd now like to introduce our next reader, Mark. Um, Mark Stocker lives with his family in Suffolk. He studied English and European literature at the University of Essex. His short and flash fiction has been published by Lunate Fiction, The Fair, 
Cranked Anvil, Flash Anthology, Pure Slush, Growing Up Anthology, Ellipsis Zine, and others. His stories have been placed in competitions including Virtual Zine V300, Highly Commended, and Flash 500 Short Story, Winner 2021. He is currently working on his first novel, Peter Hegarty Wants to Get Off. Thank you, Isabel. Uh, hello, I am Mark Stocker, um, and I'm going to read uh, this evening from the beginning of my novel in progress, uh, Peter Hegarty wants to get off. Uh, it's the story of a working class misfit who, when life becomes too much, looks for a way out. Uh, it's told across two timelines, Peter as an adult, edging towards the precipice, and Peter as a child, dealing with the disappearance of his mother. June, 1990, Kent, England. Peter uncrossed his legs and leaned against the wall to give himself a better view. The chipped plaster felt rough on his cheek. Through a crack in the door, he could see Mum dashing back and forth, filling the suitcase that lay open on the bed. Every few seconds, she paused, heaving out weighty breaths. Then on she pushed, dipping with purpose into a drawer or stretching high to snatch something from a shelf. Peter still didn't know where she was going or why. She had ignored his questions and told him to wait on the landing, where he now sat watching her decide what to take and what to leave behind. Shifting his body had sent Peter's long hair, damp with sweat, slipping across the back of his neck. Soft air feathered up the stairs from the front door, left a jar in the hurry to get in, and cooled his skin. Peter reached for his drink. Often, after Mum collected him from school, they would go to the library, either to borrow books or to collapse into the red beanbags in the children's section, where they would read funny poems or stories of child detectives who managed to outwit the bad guys and solve every uncrackable case. On a hot day, like today, they might skip the library and go to the park to see who could swing the highest or spin on the roundabout for the longest time without feeling sick. Peter always won that one, going around and around long after Mum had conceded defeat. He believed he could spin forever. But today there had been no library, no park. Instead, Mum had pulled up outside the corner shop on Marshall's Lane. She had told him to stay in the car while she hurried inside emerging two minutes later with a packet of opal fruits and a can of lilt, which Peter clutched to his chest like unexpected treasure until he got home. On the landing, he had torn into the sweets and savoured the fruity stickiness between his teeth. He delayed opening the drink for fear that all too quickly it would be gone, but his thirst had got the better of him. Peter blinked as the ring pull snapped and the liquid fizzed. He took a gulp so big it made his whole mouth shimmer. In the bedroom, Lily Hegarty yanked at clothes hangers that collided and clattered to the wardrobe floor. She shrieked and bent to retrieve jeans and a jumper, leggings and a long sleeve top. Peter hadn't seen her wear anything like that for a while, and he wondered if she was going somewhere cold, or to a place where she would need to be a more rough-and-tumble version of herself. His mum floated. That's what she did. She glided through chaos and catastrophe, almost always in a long dress, light and so thin at the edges that it looked when the sun shone through like a magical trail drifting along behind her. Peter watched Lily toss the clothes into the case, along with a fistful of knickers and several balls of rolled-up socks. There was no system, as far as he could tell, no thought given to how to make best use of the available space. That meant there would be gaps, pockets of wasted opportunity where more belongings could have been squeezed in. 
Peter couldn't remember the case being open before or even removed from its place under his parents' bed. It was dusty and grey, the hard leather split and its lining yellow with age. Peter had hoped they might one day take it on a family holiday, perhaps on an aeroplane to an exotic resort with a long name and turquoise seas and all the ice cream an 11-year-old boy could eat. But this didn't look like holiday packing. This looked like an escape. Peter removed the paper from another suite. The sharpness of lime bit into his tongue. Can I come in? He murmured. Mum didn't answer. Peter ran his fingers down the wall, over the dents and blemishes to the skirting board. He picked idly at the peeling paint, snapping pieces from the wood, and crumbled white flakes into the curled threads of the carpet. At the bottom of the stairs, Cleo appeared, her tail winding, her eyes barely open from a full afternoon's sleep. Peter whispered to her and waggled his can in the hope that it might entice her up to join him. Cleo looked at the drink and at the 13 steps, turned three circles and dropped into a bed of light thrown down by the sun through the open front door. Suit yourself, said Peter. Mum had a jewellery box, smooth and dark, that sat on a ledge on the dressing table above her perfumes and powders, lipsticks and creams. It had golden handles on its drawers and a lid that lifted to reveal a ballerina who spun to the chimes of Swan Lake until the music died and the key at the back needed to be turned again. Peter liked to sit and watch the little figure dance in the mornings while he talked to Mum about the day ahead. He would tell her about each of the lessons on his timetable, the teachers he was fond of and those he didn't get on with so well. He would skirt around who he planned to spend his lunch break with, lying if pressed about all the friends he had to choose from. Lily opened the box. The music played, but it was slow. The ballerina completed half a pirouette. Instead of turning the key to set her dancing again, Lily took hold of the lid and pushed her long nails into a rip in the blue cushion on the underside of it, rummaging until she plucked out a tiny screwdriver. Peter watched her use it to remove the screws at the sides of the box and those at the back. She tugged hard on the top and bottom until the whole thing came apart. Pieces sprayed across the dressing table and onto the floor. Shit! Peter didn't think he'd heard her swear before. It was like a scratch. She grabbed beads and bracelets, a few pairs of earrings, and slung them in the direction of the case. Gripping the base of the box, she twisted the tiny screwdriver once more, then yanked at the wooden facade until it broke to reveal a hidden space from which she pulled a flattened roll of notes. Peter couldn't guess how much there was, but he knew he'd never seen such a large amount of money. His mind darted to the things it could have bought. A new bike? Enough Lilton opal fruits to last a lifetime. Peter felt an urge to stand, to ready himself for whatever was coming. A journey, perhaps. He pulled himself up and pushed the toes of his school shoes over the threshold into the room, nudging the door, which had been left open enough to allow him a view of Mum twirling about. He wanted to press it further, to go in, but he'd been told to stay outside, and that's what he did. Thank you. And so to Melody. Uh, Melody Bowles is a short story writer who grew up in Cambridgeshire. She co-hosts the Short Story Workshop podcast. Uh, her stories have been accepted for publication by Noctavigant Press, sorry if I've got that wrong, um, and Night Writing Press. Um, she is working on a collection of fantasy stories set in modern times based on her favourite myths and legends from the UK. It includes fairies, mermaids, gremlins, lantern men, 
and the Loch Ness Monster. Please welcome Melody to the stage. Thanks, Mark. Hi, I'm Melody. As you've just heard, I'm writing a short story collection bringing my favorite myths from around the UK into modern times. This is an extract from my short story, The Star, based on the myth of the Sussex water serpent, or Nucker. My main character is a failing actress who unknowingly helps propel the Nucker to stardom. Matilda remembered her drama tutor saying, everyone wished they sounded like they were in a film. Real conversation was painful, too much stumbling, too much stop starting, too much puzzling over what the other really meant. Her princess knew what the hero would say and had the perfect response at the ready. If Matilda had a boyfriend ready to fight a monster, she wouldn't be egging him on. She'd be telling him to run for his life, especially if, like her co-star Will, he made her believe a smile really could be heart-melting. No wonder Will's acting career was on the up and hers on the down. Will's lines were just as cliched as her princesses. He was supposed to play the kind of bloke you'd want to have a pint with. Unfortunately, the way he said, all right, was all wrong. He made it sound like an actual inquiry rather than a lazy greeting. Matilda struggled to focus. She definitely felt odd, queasy, but she had a job to do. Poison, you say, Matilda gasped, a hand to her breast. How cowardly. Any man who wishes to wed me should fight nobly and... Matilda's legs fell out from under her as she threw up. Oh God, oh God. And it was on camera. She was so very, very fired. No one in the film industry would ever want to work with her again. And the people at Job Center Plus were going to laugh her out of the office. Will crouched beside her and held back her hair, which was far more noble than killing a knucker, dragon, whatever, with a sword, at least in her book. She wondered if Will would still flirt with her now she'd chundered on his shoes. She stumbled away over to the pond or knucker hole or whatever it was supposed to be. Being sick in the mud was better than the grass, probably. She watched the water ripple and flex. Where the hell had Penny sourced their free lunchtime sandwiches from? A mad scientist laboratory. They'd looked past their best, but they hadn't tasted that bad. Hang on, said Will. He had retrieved his sandwich packet. These are a month out of date. The water bubbled over the knucker hole like a saucepan. Steam rose up. A shape formed, murky before the air cleared. Scales gleamed in the sunlight, turning its weak rays into bright, shimmering lights. There was a beat while the complete cast and crew all stared. Someone screamed. Someone else hushed them. Matilda had been wondering what a knucker was, and now she knew. It had a long serpentine body made of steam and mud. Its eyes were cat-shaped and sickly yellow. When it opened its jaw, she saw a deep void studded with shark teeth. A rumbling sound came from the knucker. The water whirled as it roared. Matilda stumbled back, watched as the line of its body streamed towards her, jaws open. The director's special effects were very realistic, not a green screen in sight. Princesses, it rasped, never learn. Its dank breath touched her cheek. Matilda was silly to be scared. This monster was just an effect, and she knew what to do 
It was right there in the script, which she'd spent a week learning top to bottom. She didn't have the right props, so for this take, she'd just have to improvise. Iridescent knuckerdrawl splashed her cheek as its jaw unhinged, revealing the dark cave of its throat. But no way was she letting this stupid special effect ruin her moment. This was her scene, and she wasn't going anywhere. Will, bless him, ran towards her, just like a romantic hero. But she only needed one thing. She seized the sandwich from his grasp. Oi, you knucker, she yelled. Eat this. She hurled the discarded sandwich into the beast's gaping maw. Its jaws came down as it swallowed the Tudor monstrosity. Its eyes rolled into the back of its head. It coughed and spluttered and coughed and fell back into its hole. There it sank below the mud, tongue lolling from its mouth. No, it wailed, voice trailing off weakly. Not poison. As death scenes went, it was just as corny as the rest of the script. Matilda wiped her cheek and sank into the grass. All was quiet, apart from the cameras whirring. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, I would like to introduce Rick. Rick Royds is a playwright, short story, and novel writer. He is the author of three novels, a short story collection, and his work has been performed at the Madder Market Theatre in Norwich. Music is an overwhelming influence on his writing, from rock, blues, jazz to ambient, and he is inspired by the likes of Chinua Achebe, Margaret Atwood, and J.M. Coetzee. Rick seeks to explore mystery, speculative fiction, imagination, social realism, and, if possible, write rock and roll on the page. Please welcome Rick. Well, thank you, Melody. Okay, this is an extract from Estranged, which is a mystery story of abduction. Los Angeles, 27th of May, 2024. It is raining with dark, heavy, expectant skies. A four-lane highway. A sign reads a turn-off for Venice Beach. There is heavy traffic, station wagons, vans, SUVs, pickup trucks, sports cars, hybrids, cars, cars, cars. The world moving, the world gridlocked in inertia. Everything is a vehicle, all is a car. There are sounds of traffic, car horns, heavy engines gunning and revving, smaller car engines rattling impatiently. The sound of motorcycle engines coughing past. Slowly, certainly, the sky becomes blackboard dark and heavy rain thunders down into the highway, reverberating like nails echoing onto the road. Pearl glances up at the downpour sky (coughs) and pouts in frustration. She is young, beautiful, African-American, itching in the hurry up and wait. Miles an hour, impatience of the young and the rich. She reaches for her phone. Text message. Pearl. The sky's as black as night. It's raining. This is California, isn't it, sweetie? Text message. Kiki. Global warming or something. Pearl closes her eyes just for a moment and visualizes herself cruising along wide, immaculate highways in her racing green Porsche 
top down in the warm sun of a perfect afternoon. Easy as lemonade, practically as sweet. If America was a dream, then it was an aspiration of movement. Large V8 engines driving powerful cars along thousands of miles of highways and roads. To move and move, never looking back, tire after tire, movement after movement, mile after mile. One gas station after another, state after state, nowheresville town after backwater town, stranger after stranger, one hitchhiker denied after another after another. No standing still, no regrets, just to keep moving on and on, repeat. Pearl's flashback. Pearl closes her eyes again. She drives along wide, peaceful roads under hanging trees, green in some benevolent nature embrace, with the sun beaming through the scattered spaces in the branches of the trees until the sky becomes dark and she is 12 years old again, running through the large wood cabin in Disney pajamas, crying for daddy as the cabin is possessed by blinding red light with the floor under her feet buckling to flip Pearl into the air, along with the heavy table, retro TV hi-fi unit and the entire kitchen. Pearl literally shakes her head. She wipes her brow free of sweat. Pearl swerves the car away from a central reservation of barrels that she narrowly avoids driving into. Jesus, Pearl yells. Pearl turns off the busy highway and drives along a wide, quiet road. Slowly, meekly, the sun beams petals of light through a canopy of trees above her. She pulls into a field steps out and leans onto the hood of the car. Breathing deeply, her hands drop towards the hood of the car. Just leave me alone, damn it! Just like the doctor said, breathe through it, girl. Pearl recites. Pearl stands there for moments of revelations into 15 minutes of grasping for composure. Breathing slowly, deep breaths, breathe in, breathe out, repeat. Pearl breathes. The sun bursts into the sky, engulfing the horizon. Pearl puckles her seatbelt and puts on a pair of mirrored aviator sunglasses. She whispers something, but we can't make it out from this distance. Nightclub, 27th, 28th of May, 2024. Underworld, Born Slippy is playing. A massive nightclub, heavy strobe lighting, wide dance floors, Eight stories, seven bars, an elaborate chandelier dominates the ceiling, despite the strobe light. Pearl and friends are drinking champagne and laughing, sitting on large sofas around a long, ornamental marble table. Crimson Rope allocates their private section of a large balcony. Suddenly, Pearl jumps onto the table and starts dancing around the bottles and glasses of champagne. She dances and texts at the same time. The Bee Gees Staying Alive starts playing. Text message. Pearl, I love this song. It's so retro, honey. Text message. Kiki, it's so retro. My pops has it. 
Kiki stands at the bar waiting for a drink. She pulls out her phone, looks at it, laughs, then begins dancing. The line of people notice her. They begin cheering and clapping. A young woman fires confetti over her. Kiki laughs and claps her hands. She dances more and more seductively. Paul jumps back onto the ground and skips into a giant elevator. She pushes a button for the ground floor. Moments later, she steps out of the elevator and walks into the ladies' toilets. Light blue marble, deep wide sinks with copper taps. She walks into a cubicle and urinates. The toilets are empty except for honey. In uniform, scrubbing the floors with force and determination. Pearl opens the cubicle door and honey turns around. For long seconds, they stare at one another. Oh, hi, honey. How are you? Are we still not talking? Pearl asks. How many times did you torment me because your daddy was rich with my daddy who knows where? Honey replies. But we were 10. I didn't know a thing about anything. Kiki and Bobby miss you like crazy, Pearl implores. Still not talking. Honey replies and walks past Pearl, completely ignoring her. Thank you. It's my exciting pleasure to introduce the next writer, Shirley Day. Shirley writes thrillers, murder mysteries, and domestic noir. Two of her thrillers are about to be published by Bloodhound Books. In the darkest corners of the darkest moments of her darkest stories, Day is always a dry sense of humor. In her spare time, she dabbles in quirky tales for the YAMG market. She teaches screenwriting and theater at two universities and works for the literary consultancy as a script consultant. She's written literary stories for Radio 4, been shortlisted for Granta, and had work in anthologies, winning awards for her theater and screenplays. She's currently studying for a PhD in adaptation. Please welcome her onto the stage. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I noticed a connection between Rick and my story. He, I've also got a chandelier in my story, but of course my story is a cosy crime and it is used to kill people with, um, or attempted. Um, so that's the genre which I'm writing, uh, or have been writing for the Escalator Project. It's a cosy crime. Um, and this is actually from the first, the sort of opening, the opening page, actually. Um, so I hope you'll be able to follow it. I'm sure that you will. Um, so this is called I Look Good in Black. Despite what the fashion houses tell you, not everyone looks good in black. Me, I can pull it off. Dark hair and a sunbed does the trick. At least till I open my mouth. Then it's pure scouse. Although over the years, I have managed to muscle that under control. Five years, to be precise. It's amazing what you can fix if you find the right YouTube channel. I get to the church last minute. In all the time I've been doing this, I found last minute works best. 
There's a balance to be struck. You need to be late enough so bored eyes don't notice you coming in, but not so late so as you draw attention. As it turns out, I'm not sure I've attracted even so much as a sideways sniffle. The congregation is already whispering like a boiling kettle without me. I've taken to wearing black most days now, which could seem like a fashion front cop-out for a woman barely grazing 26, but I like to be ever ready. I never know when that call is going to come in. This one came totally out of the blue. I'd been preoccupied with my brother, AJ, so I must have missed the obit in the papers. First I heard about it was an eight-word text from Marco, my mate, who's also in the business. Influential woman on the island, suffering the usual. And influential is about the size of it because the church is packed and packed is always a good sign. Popular people tend to live extravagantly. Extravagance equals debt. Debt results in a hasty offload on the property front. It's getting now or never because this kind of real estate sells fast. The island sits around 28 miles off the coast. Technically speaking, it's not actually an island, more of a clump, an archipelago. The aerial shots are seriously worth a gander because this is not the kind of thing you imagine sitting a hop, skip and a jump away from cold old blighty. A scatter of green filled with bleached white sand set in turquoise seas. In truth, there is only one proper island. By proper, I mean working. So somewhere that can boast a church, a pub, a post office, and more than a handful of people. One less person, as of today. Not that I'll be needing a hanky to wipe away the tears. It's the bricks and mortar she's leaving vacant that's holding my interest. Good stuff on the island doesn't come up every day. It's near impossible to get planning permission, so people cling on to their property. Even when the owners kick the bucket, they'll want to go passing those sea views onto their kids, or maybe even the kids of their kids. It's one hell of a good deal, if you're in on the supply chain. There's a space to the right. A thin, sombre guy in black whispers as he pushes an order of service into my hand. He's giving me the so-sorry so simper as I move past him into the church. A small, respectful, tight twitch pulling his lips together. I mirror what thin, sombre is doing with my own mouth. Mirroring always works a treat. It's the easiest way to slip under the radar which is exactly where I like to be. My oh-so-tastefully low-court shoes barely make a sound as I glide a few pat pews down the aisle. Nobody is interested, so I get the chance to enjoy the majesty of the high ceiling as that cool incense smell tweaks hard at the top of my nostrils. I may not be religious, but that doesn't stop me appreciating the architecture and I'll enjoy the singing once it gets started. 
As I glide, I turn off my phone. I don't like doing it. I'm waiting for a call from my brother, AJ. He's up for parole, but the switch off can't wait. The last thing I need is to have my marimba playing its bright, sparky tune into the hushed silence of the service. I don't always go to the church. I can normally tell from the state of the congregation's shoes as they clatter through the lynch gate if it's worth direct contact. But even before I got one whiff of shoe leather on this occasion, I knew I should go for whatever was on offer. Besides, I'd already made the effort. I'd had to catch the ferry to get here and that hasty bit of background research I pulled up on the family, well, that just made me keen as a cat to grab myself a closer snoop. Once safely installed behind my pew, I take a quick look at the order of service. It's nicely done. Card, not paper. Expensive with that faint vanilla smell. The relatives didn't just spew this out on some home office inkjet. Everything about it has the professional touch. Someone has taken the time to set it out, consider the GSM, ferry it down to the printers, then collect it all in a box they could barely lift. It bodes well when you're impressed by the stationery. Still can't quite believe it. A bottle blonde woman in her 70s hisses at her angular husband. He nods demurely. What can you say? I could tell her it is always a shock, no matter what the circumstances. I've listened in on enough of these conversations, but nobody likes a smart ass. So that's it. Thank you, Shirley, and to all of tonight's writers for your wonderful readings. One more time, please join me in giving it up for Adam Leader, Carrie Patton, Bang Wang, Ben Cartwright, Joanna Miller, Isabel Higgins, Mark Stocker, Melody Bowles, Rick Royds, and Shirley Day. A big thank you to all of our escalatees, and don't forget you can help us support writers like these by purchasing one of our limited edition screen prints or by making a donation via our website. If you have questions or want to get in touch, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Writer Centre, and you'll find us on Facebook by searching National Centre for Writing. Don't forget to sign up to our weekly newsletter by visiting nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk and clicking the orange drop-down box on the homepage. As a UK-registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation over on the website today by hitting the Support Us button in the top nav. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us because it helps other writers to find the podcast. Thanks again, keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode.